My name is Camillus Power. I'm a student in the School of Philosophy and Economic Science, and I tutor there, and I work in the medical profession. I work as an anaesthetist. And I hope tonight to deal with the issues of health. So if I find my notes, we can start. One observation I made when I went to meetings in India, medical meetings, is that all the doctors there, particularly the Congress that I was at, had a, a prayer invocation before the meeting in Sanskrit. And I don't propose to do it in Sanskrit, but I, I propose just to read what they dedicate the meeting with in English. And then I think it's useful to note just the, the first sentence. We'll come back to it. So body of all, mind of all, spirit of all, may we meditate on the supreme, on the all-pervading radiance of the ultimate source of divine light. May he inspire the innermost thoughts of our hearts. May peace and peace and peace be everywhere. So the first thing in that dedication is the body, mind, spirit. When I went to medical school a number of years ago, we did a subject called community medicine and epidemiology. And we were told about a famous congress that the World Health Organization organized in the Soviet Union, an international organization to define what health is. And they came up with a definition that included the physical, the mental, and the social aspect of man. And maybe it reflected the times, but there was no mention of the spiritual aspect of man. Years later, when I was training in pain medicine, I did one of these um, multi-professional courses in the hospice. And for the first time, the spirit was mentioned in terms of health. And it was kind of ironic that here you were as you exiting the world and you get the definition of health. But that's the way it is. And it is said by one of the great teachers in Ayurveda, which it's unfair to describe it as traditional Indian medicine because it predates the concept of India. But in Ayurvedic medicine, Charaka was one of the great teachers. And he said that all health stands on this tripod of body, mind, and spirit. And if you leave out one leg, the rest doesn't make sense. So it's very important to, to look at it. The actor Laurence Olivier said that in his lifetime, he played at least 100 parts and knew them all better than he knew himself. So I hope that tonight we can look at man at the different levels and in the context of health and get to know what health is about. So if you go to a um, shop, factory outlet or whatever, and you buy a magnificent instrument, you've saved up a lot for it, it's very precious. So you give the money and you get the instrument. What's the first thing you look for when you bring the instrument home? Any suggestions? Instructions. Okay. So what I hope to look at tonight are the instruction manuals for the instrument that we've got, the body. We rarely ask for the instructions. So we're going to start with the physical. Physical is a good place to start with. And we're going to look at what Ayurvedic medicine has to say about the physical. So just to explain a little bit of the background. Ayurveda means Ayur is life and Veda is knowledge. So it is a life science. It is the knowledge of life. And 
the basic system in the ancient world was to look at the creation as composed of five elements. So everything that you see can be described in terms of five elements. So there's ether, air, fire, water, earth. Now, our medicine, if you go back to the Greeks, was based on four elements. The ether or space was left out. And in India, they joke about this. They say Alexander the Great came to India and learned their medicine, but couldn't understand what space was about and just deleted it. And Western medicine is based on four elements and not five. Now, to give you a feel for what this means, we're going to look at the body in terms of the five elements. And we come back to the meaning of it all at a later point. So the first thing is that the elements come together to form three energies. The space and the air come together and form what we call vata. Fire stays alone and is called pitta. And earth and water stay together and called kapha. So you have kapha, pitta, and vata. Or we'd say water and fire and air. What we're going to describe now is really a caricature of each. So there's a little bit of poetic license involved in it, but it'll give you a flavor of it. And it'll also allow, as we go through the various parts of the body, for you to figure out in your own mind what you might be made up of and what the dominant part of your being is. So the first thing is to look at the build of a person. The build of a, an air body or a vata body is said, the key word is irregularity. Nothing is fixed. It is said that if you look at the back of your hand, and this is kind of a very practical one, so you can have a look at the back of your hand, when the tendons stand out, when they're very prominent, that indicates air in the system. So you have a light weight. The system is underdeveloped. You have thin limbs and prominent tendons. If you look at the fire body, the pitta body, the build is usually medium, neither too big nor too small. It's precision. It's well finished. So you're not going to have one ear at one angle and another ear at another angle. It's a well finished model. The water body or kapha body is said to be heavy and muscular and big. And for those of you who did Leaving Start Poetry and remember a few lines, the blacksmith Felix Randall was described as um, big boned and hardy handsome. So you can imagine you know, a large man has a lot of water in the being. If we move to skin next, the air body, our vata body, the skin is described as being dry, rough, cold, crackles, and easily dries out. Whereas the fire body, there'll be a practical test now in a minute on this particular one, so I hope you're paying attention. The fire body and the skin is said to be warm, it has a glow, it's luscious, it's silky, and it has lots of moles. And the water body, or kapha body, and the skin is thick, oily, pale, and cold. Okay? Now I'm going to ask you to shake the hand of the person alongside you and figure out what they might be. Don't feel shy. I have no idea. <laughs> okay, okay. Experiment over. <laughs> If giving the hand of peace in church was as much fun as this, I would do a lot for the church. 
So now you can learn about, you know, it's kind of going out of fashion these days, shaking hands. People just kind of say hi and look at the floor. But if you shake someone's hand and even look them in the eye and they come to eyes in minutes, you can learn a lot about the being in front of you. Hair. We look at hair. It's not very complimentary for a vata. Dry, rough, moss-like. Eyelashes, short. Fire, pitta, well, bald. You can burn the grass. <laughs> Red. Young people who go white very early on. And then if we move to water or kapha, but clearly you can water the grass, so it's going to be luscious, it's going to be thick, it's going to be wavy, and you're going to be jealous about it. So basically, that's the hairstyle in each. If we look at um, nails, again, you go back to the back of your hand. Hand is very useful in this. Vata nails are usually slow-growing. They may have an irregularity to them. The fire nails, pitta nails, you tend to see the nail bed is very pink. And then in kapha, by contrast, it's white and smooth and strong, hard nails to cut. You need the shears. Now, we get back to those eyes, so you're doing that handshake and you're trying to make a quick assessment. Well, you might have picked up at this stage, but air is all about movement. So the whole theme in air is going to be movement. So the eyes are going to be moving. They're going to be darting. You're not going to have good eye contact. They're going to move on you. What do you think is going to happen when you shake hands with a fire person? They penetrating eyes. They're going to stare you out of it. And what happens with, uh, when you look into someone with kapha eyes, water eyes? <laughs> well, they're said to be beautiful. You just keep looking. So when we come to teeth, again, air has an irregularity to it. So it might, again, seem not very complimentary, but irregularity, crooked. Fire. Fire tends to like sweet things in life. Teeth tend to have problems with decay and yellow teeth. And then the kapha body, these patients or individuals have very little problems with their teeth, and they keep them for a lifetime without any problem. If we move on to voice, the, the air-type voice is talkative, high-pitched. There's excitement in it. There's rising cadence. It's an Irish voice, really. And if you walk into a room and you have some Irish people in the room, you can immediately hear that shrill, that kind of excitement in the voice. Fire, the voice is very forceful. It's very clear. When you get instruction from a fire-type person, there's no doubt about the instruction. It's very clear. And then water is melodious. You just, again, want to look into those eyes and just keep listening. <laughs> So if you get to temperament now, an air-type person, again, picking up that theme of movement and irregularity, what do you think the temperament might be like? It's very changeable, okay? It's unpredictable. You don't know what's going to happen. These are the people who decide on Monday to do one thing with absolute conviction and on Wednesday do the opposite. There's a liability there. They can get upset and excited about things almost into one session. They learn quickly. Air picks up things very quickly. You have a gadget or gizmo, you show it to a person with a lot of air in their constitution, and you only need to show it to them once. They'll pick it up immediately. But they'll also forget it, so the following week you may have to do it again. <laughs> Desires change and wreak havoc. And we alluded to the firm decisions, which also change. The temperament of a fire-type person, the key word here is competition. 
they are competitive, they are direct, they are well-ordered, they tend to pursue academic things, they have that temperament. And a water-type person, these are calm, easy-going people, content. If you think of your own family or your workplace, the linchpin, the person around whom everyone else orbits, they tend to be the, the water-type person in temperament, or at least have a measure of water in their system. In terms of learning, they're slow. You show them the gadget, and they don't pick it up. You show them again, and they still don't get it. And you keep at it. But the thing about them is, once they get it, they never forget it. So they got it, and you will not have to repeat it. They don't miss a meal. They can't miss a meal. They get upset, particularly the early meal, lunchtime. They get upset. I work in anesthetic practice, and I kind of know that if I'm covering theaters with junior anesthetists and some of them are fiery, that there are certain people who need to be let out for lunch. <laughs> they tend to like spirits, which can be a problem. And the big problem in fire in general is the whole issue of measure. They always bite off more than they can chew, and that's what leads them into trouble. With regard to appetite, kapha or water type, the water type individual, they like rich, heavy foods. So they like foods with lots of the attributes that they've got are often water in them, which is unfortunate because they're already big, so they get bigger. <laughs> sleep. With regard to sleep, vata or the air type constitution, the sleep is light and restless. So poor quality sleep, tendency towards insomnia, people who wake up in the morning and are not very refreshed after the night. Lots of dreams, and they may remember their dreams. In children, they may sleepwalk. In the fire-type sleep, these are people who just take their sleep. It's sound, it's short, and again, it has that precision to it. So there's no hankering after a longer period of sleep. They, they get up. Water or kapha, they just like to sleep and sleep, and sleep, and they may not get up for a long time. <laughs> so if we move on to clothes, the air-type constitution, what type of colors are they going to dress in? Blue is not a bad guess because it's kind of the sky, so you're catching on. It's interesting. It's actually black and white, which is a very common color combination in say, younger generations in the past 20 years, black and white combination. Fire, pitta, go for bright colors. So pitta individual might be, if you say, even if you have someone who conforms, say you have an executive who's got a very dark suit, but he'll have that just little bit of color, the tie or the handkerchief or whatever. So it'll be a little bit of fire in the being because they actually like color. And with regard to clothes, water, is water interested in color? Does water care about color? No. Water is classically the country lady who goes to the town to buy the big coat in the winter, the big heavy coat. It has to be comfortable. It's comfort. It's not color so much that's important. Hobbies. What do you think you might find an air type or vata type constitution doing on a, an evening like this? <laughs> They're probably not here. <laughs> they like to move. Sport, yeah, they like things that, that keep them moving. So dancing, sports that have a lot of activity in them. They like to talk. They like to travel. Fire-type constitution, what type of sports, uh, what can you say about their sporting activities? 
chemistry. Well, they're very competitive, so they do like sport, and they do a lot of contact sports. So the more competition is in it, that's what will attract a fire type to sport. But they do other things other than sport, and because they're academic, they'll do reading and they, they'll write, and they'll also be into nature and adventure. All of those things are fire-type pursuits. What about water and sport? Well, water loves sport, loves to watch sport. <laughs> and if you decide to get water active, like sports like playing chess, <laughs> Maybe those summer lawn games that are so popular in Britain, croquet, etc., watching the cricket, maybe a little bit of cricket. In one of the old texts about water, they say, likes to drive in a carriage. So I presume that means likes to be chauffeured. Now, the work, the working characteristic of a near-type constitution, a vata-type constitution, what characterizes their work is change. So you can look at your own work record, or you can look at the work record of someone who comes to mind, but where there's a lot of change over the years. Again, that indicates a fair bit of air in the constitution. Fire-type or pitta-type constitution, they usually pursue one option until it kills them, and it often does. So, again, you've got the competitive zeal coming out there, but people who die suddenly, fire-type constitution. And water, one of the attributes of water is Things tend to accumulate around them. Things tend to fall into their lap. So they tend to find wealth, gather wealth, arrive with wealth. They just have that natural tendency to have it without doing too much. So they may be involved in occupations in that area. They have a strength also, so they may be occupied using their strength once moved and motivated. Particularly if you work in combination with an air-type person, you get them moving. If we look at the animals that are meant to symbolize each category, and you have to remember here that this originated in the tropics, so they're going to be tropical animals, but what animal do you think might represent air-type constitution? Monkey. So chattering, capacity to dart about, socially gregarious, but can change. So that is the animal associated with air. Fire. Tiger, tiger, curiosity kills the cat. And with kaffa, an elephant. So. <laughs> Likes to play with water and never forgets. So, so what's the point in knowing all of this? Well, first of all, have you, do you have a flavor of what might be dominant in your being at this point in time? Or in your partner or in people in your household? Well, hopefully you, you have a sense of where it's going. Now, it is said in this traditional medicine that each category is subject to a particular disease type. So, again, looking at caricatures, because it will emphasize that people are really, in truth, a mixture of all of these. But if you look at the caricature of a Vata-type constitution with its tendency towards movement, and irregularity. Diseases that would be common in that particular group include? Any offers? Not so much heart. We said nervous system diseases. So basically, all diseases that relate to the nervous system and psychiatric diseases, which are very prevalent at the moment. Like when I say psychiatric, you think psychiatric as in mad. But the, what is important to take into account is 
all the stress-related diseases that we talk about. It is said that 75% of GP consultations are stress-related. The Surgeon General in America predicts that by 2010, the number one disease in the world will be depression. So basically, these type of diseases, which are very common in our world today, the Vata constitution particularly prone to. Fire type constitution, cardiac disease. So sudden death, we alluded to earlier, anything in the cardiovascular system, the gut, upper gut in particular, the skin, we described that beautiful skin earlier, the silky moles, etc., but clearly it has a downside. And the lymphatic system, for some reason, in the fire-type constitution, probably because it's part of the, the circulation. The water-type constitution, it is the healthiest of the three. The diseases tend to be slowly growing in keeping with the constitution. So endocrine diseases, often diabetes, chest diseases, some kidney diseases, but usually diseases that take a while to present have been there for some time. And overall, water-type constitution has a long life. And even when it comes to death, as we alluded to, fire uh, dies suddenly. Water is the type of person who you've heard like they were dying weeks ago and they seem to be still dying and they're taking quite a while to die. <laughs> Classical example apparently was Winston Churchill who took some time to die, was dying for a few weeks. Again, that's kind of a water-type thing to do, or an exit. So that is very much the physical realm. So now we're going to look at something a little bit more subtle, so we look at the mind. Now, in terms of the mind, we change the description. We look at, again, three things. They're energies, they're more subtle energies. For those of you who have done part one, you've been introduced to them. The material that I'm going to use to describe these energies comes from week six in part one which is an advertisement. The first one is tamas, second is rajas, and the final one is sattva. And I'm going to go through the three of them. Now, it, it is said that tamas and rajas are the qualities of the mind. Sattva is not part of the mind normally. It's what we aspire to. When sattva dominates in the mind, that is a state of health, and we'll come back to that in a moment. So let's look at tamas first. Now, there is a link between the energies and the elements, but we won't go into that at the moment. Tamas, darkness. It absorbs consciousness and holds the forms of things. So in terms of the experience, there's heedlessness and laziness. So those days in which you just feel lethargic. The body feels heavy. The senses are dull. The mind is foggy. There's a slowness. There's a confusion there. And there's all sorts of limitations. There's all sorts of reasons why you can't do something. The emotions are dark. There's a meanness there. You're almost destructive. You can be. And in terms of love and the relationships, love has become, it's kind of turned into a little bit of jealousy, envy, and there might even be some spite there. And the beloved becomes an object of calculated ill will. And I'm sure none of this ever happens to any of us. But that's a day when tamas dominates. Rajas, the next energy that is an energy of the mind, is characterized by an upbeat day. It's full of activity. There's creation. There's passion. In rajas, we experience a thirst for what we have I'm sorry, what we don't have, and we're attached to what we already have. So the mind is busy. It's busy 
looking for results with ends and means, how to achieve a result, how to avoid a particular result. So we have plans and we have schemes and the body feels tense and restless. And the emotions are all about give and take, so you're bargaining. So you'll make a deal with the beloved. You'll have excitement and exuberance and delight, but it might change to anger. It's a little bit unpredictable. And there's often frustration, there can be aversion, so it's very changeable. And again, you can see the activity in Rajas. And it is said that the qualities of the mind are these two. And each day we flit between them, or each hour we might flit between them, and they're the dominant qualities. Satwa, the final one. I should have said that in tamas, it absorbs consciousness, probably did, and that rajas reflects consciousness. The key in satwa is it conducts consciousness. It brings consciousness into any particular situation. It's translated roughly as goodness or purity. Characteristics are it's stainless, lucid, healthy. It reflects things as they truly are. The body feels light, refreshed, and agile. It's healthy, alert, and at ease. The mind is clear, bright, perceptive, efficient. Information is readily gleaned and assimilated. So everything is very much in the moment. Reason is incisive, and memory is acute. There's no clutter in the emotions. You respond to the needs of others. So you're working towards a unified approach. And in terms of love, there's now no bargaining. There's no demands made on the beloved. It's just unconditional. One explanation given in philosophy is there's no ego involved. So they're the three qualities of the mind. Now what Ayurveda, Ayurvedic medicine says about these qualities of mind is that the journey into health is the journey from tamas through rajas to sattva. That's the object in terms of having the mind healthy. So the key question is how do we get sattva in terms of the mind? Or how do we accumulate it? So how do we attain this peace of mind so that we can enjoy the fruits of perfect health? The wise tell us that peace is our birthright and we lose it through ignorance. More precisely, we lose it through what's termed intellectual error. And this is one of the key aspects of Ayurvedic medicine, this intellectual error. And the basic error is that we mistake. We mistake the five elements which make up the body and mind. And we call that ourself. Now, at some level, we know that the body and mind is not the totality of what we are. That's why we keep searching. But we lose it, we forget it. And this medicine says that unless you know the self, the mind can't really be still. So you see there's a big dilemma in the modern world because everyone's looking for peace of mind. Well, this is pretty clear in the instruction manual. Unless you know that self, the mind cannot be still. So the first component of this intellectual error is understanding. And this is where philosophy will help in its constant cycle of questions and answers. The word for health in Sanskrit is swashta, which means in the self. So clearly, when there's an understanding here, that is where you are centered, in the self. 
And it is said that the source of all disease is ignorance of that self. That a disease has one stem, ignorance of the self. The second consequence of this intellectual error is that we lose willpower. And there's quite a lot written about this. It phrases it as follows. The ability of the mind to be restrained from its natural tendency to go towards the unwholesome. Now, the unwholesome will be different for different people. But it is said that when you miss the first bit, that you don't understand who you are, then the mind is really now in, in, it's kind of on autopilot. And it will have a tendency to go towards the unwholesome, which will generate disease. So often, an Ayurvedic doctor will be asked, as well as giving the, the remedy at a physical level and giving the appropriate instruction, he may give a particular instruction to an individual to restrain the mind from the unwholesome. And the final component of the intellectual error is memory. We tend to say that we don't remember who we are. When we ask the question and begin to find out um, that there is something more than the physical realm, we forget pretty soon in the, the thick of things. And it is said that, again, that the problem with memory is based on the first problem, lack of understanding. For in truth, the memorable resides in memory. So the truth needs to reside in memory. That's its natural condition. So if you understand self, the mind will naturally be still and will not go towards the unwholesome, and there will be memory of the self. So clearly the work is in addressing the issue of understanding, asking the question, who am I? Now, having taken you up into the stratosphere a little bit, we're going to come back to some practical things. Okay. So, how do we generate a little bit of sattva? How do we move towards health? Well, the first thing I'd like to quote is from Scripture. So, this is St. Paul writing to the Philippines, chapter 4, verse 8. And this describes things that have sattva. Whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are honest, whatsoever things are just, whatsoever things are pure, whatsoever things are lovely, whatsoever things are of good report. If there be any virtue, and if there be any praise, think on these things. So our duty is to work towards sattva. And this is a guide. So the first issue we need to look at is good company. And in a practical way, we need to ask ourselves the question, well, what is the company I keep? How do I spend my day? And a lot of the time now, it's not so much the company you keep in terms of the people you meet, but what's going on in your head? What type of company are you keeping there? The next issue that comes up is the whole issue of measure. There's a ancient, well it's not ancient, it's actually Roman or Latin statement, in media stad virtus nunc et semper. The truth is always in the middle, never in the extreme. So the essence of measure, the art of measure, is again something that's very important in allowing satwa to develop. So measure in terms of food. 
In Ayurvedic medicine, it's very specific about food. There's a lot to say about food. It says the most important thing with regard to food is your attitude. The attitude of the person preparing the food and the attitude of the person eating the food. It states that one person in the household can poison the whole household if the attitude is wrong. So there's that essence of state of mind and its effect on food. The next thing it talks about the quality of the food and that the food should be natural and good quality, the best that you can afford. The food needs to be offered as a sacrifice, for it is a sacrifice. The measure of food tends to be confined to meals as opposed to the modern habit of grazing, eating all day. I've got some stick before when I've said grazing is for sheep. But it is quite prevalent these days. And Ayurveda will talk about food in terms of specific meals. It's a big deal. It's a sacrifice. It also makes the point that the digestive system is a cooking system. Think of it as an oven. And it wouldn't make sense if you were going to bake a cake and you kind of put all the ingredients and you spend some time doing it and you put it in the oven at a set temperature and you turned on the temperature and the timer. It was meant to take about four hours and after 20 minutes you opened the door and just fired in something else. It just would be a bit of a mess. And it's the same idea in terms of a meal. You put a meal into the system, it's got to cook for a few hours. The idea of putting something else in just doesn't work. In terms of quantity, it talks about, it's very specific on the quantity, it talks about two handfuls of food at each sitting. So, better get the person with the largest hands to decide. <laughs> with regard to sleep, it states that the measure of sleep, in truth, is around five hours. There is constitutional variation. We did a little bit earlier. What's perhaps more important is that there is a measure to sleep, that a lot of energy, mental energy, that we do build up, good energy, is actually lost by staying in bed after we've woken up. The mind is very active during that period, and it burns off a lot of the good energy, a lot of the fine energy, a lot of the satwa. We need to work to measure. The measure of work is given at nine hours per day. So, if you're there after your ninth hour, or you're bringing your work home, this is too much work. There needs to be restful activity in the day. One of the key instructions in Ayurveda has to do with the senses. And perhaps if you forget everything else I've said tonight, and you may do, one sentence to remember is that it is the overuse, underuse, or misuse of the senses that causes disease. So overuse of a sense might be, you know, you like your food and you eat a lot of it and you're using that sense. It might even be a misuse of that sense of taste because maybe you're not actually tasting your food at all. Overuse of another sense might be visual, that you're watching television too much. And that includes the internal video that you might put on and watch internally. The sense that you may underuse might be, for example, the sense of smell. You might literally not smell the roses too often. So the idea is that you have a sense of measure in terms of the senses. And it's interesting, in Western medicine we're always caught in the dilemma of is the disease in the body, is the disease in the mind, and we usually say it's in the body. 
But a lot of Ayurveda says, well, don't get involved in that argument. It's actually in the connection between the two. It's in the senses, which is an interesting approach. We need exercise. The instrument needs to be taken for a walk. It's not just a dog that needs to be taken for a walk. The body needs to be taken for some activity. And clearly, in the ancient traditions of the world, in India, there's yoga, or China, there's Tai Chi. There's a combination of exercise, movement, and relaxation in the movement. And this is important. Cleanliness creates sattva. So all efforts to make sure that your environment is clean is useful for the mind. Devotion, and examples of devotion might be prayer, which is interesting. In the archives of internal medicine last year, the year before, they published a study on coronary care units in the United States where they did a study. And they basically had a number of people praying for the patients. There was no connection between the patients and those praying. And they asked those praying to pray for half the patients, so they gave them the names to pray. And then they followed the progress of the patients in the coronary care unit. And surprisingly, scientists felt that those who were prayed for did better. Prayer, open heart, devotion, meditation. Meditation is a supreme way to bring sattva into the being. It is said to be the pearl of great price for which one sells everything else. So it is said to be the way that one can have a particular devotion to. So there are a number of ways in which one can allow sattva to come into the being. So having talked quite a bit, I hope now just to finish up with an exercise. So again, for those of you in the school, we practice this exercise quite a bit. It's a two-minute exercise, but we just talk about it a little bit before because I want to talk about it from a kind of a, a medical slant. This key phrase that I talked about, underuse, overuse, misuse of the senses. In this exercise, we get an opportunity just to connect with each of the senses, to be present. And it is in being present, we also are allowing sattva to come into a situation because everything that you do consciously allows this energy to come into the mind. So this is a very simple exercise in which you can do daily and you can allow some sattva to come into the being simply by being there. It also will help in terms of setting up measures because you may become aware of some of the senses that you don't connect with or you may become aware of senses that you may overuse or underuse. So, in case some of you feel I'm going to spring something on you, I'll actually just tell you what we're going to do for us before, <laughs> before we do it. So I'm going to go to the senses. I'm going to go to the sense of smell. I'm going to go to the sense of taste, vision. At that stage, after vision, you can close your eyes and we go to the sense of touch. And then we go to the sense of hearing. And that's the particular order of the senses that's relevant to medicine. And when we get to hearing, I'll just ask you to extend the hearing out and I'll just read a little bit of a passage or three verses, which hopefully you can listen to in consciousness. So if you like to find a position that's comfortable. And if you just spend a moment just becoming aware of the sense of smell. Helen Keller wrote beautiful things about the sense of smell. As you know, all the other senses were limited in her. 
And she made the link that many of us have experienced that smell has a connection with memory and it can take us back. You can walk into a garden and you can get a particular smell and it can take you back to childhood. Smell is said to be one of the primitive parts of the brain, so it is there with that capacity to reach back. We often spend our day without connecting with this sense, and many in our society misuse this sense. Now connect with the sense of taste. Again, we, we eat a lot during the day, but the question is, how much do we taste? We describe people as the salt of the earth. It is said traditionally that a man's salary was his weight in salt. We value taste highly. And yet so often we miss the connection with the sense of taste or misuse it. Or perhaps we overindulge. Again, just make the connection in consciousness with the sense of taste. And now move to the sense of vision. Again, connect with the forms that you see without generating any particular mental activity. Vision is a powerful sense. It is the capacity to generate light and to lead us. Cardinal Newman said, lead on kindly light amidst the encircling doom. Light and vision can take us all the way. And yet so often it can be misused as we generate an internal world that is unwholesome. Now connect with the sense of touch. You may find it useful to close your eyes at this point. And we ask people to be in touch all the time. But the real quest is to be in touch with ourselves, with our inner being. So become aware of your body, its five elements, as it's placed on the chair. Become aware of your posture, clothes, the play of air on the face and hands. Just be in touch. Be fully there. Be fully here, conscious. And now move to hearing. Connect with the sounds in the room. Again, be present. Now, hearing has this capacity to stretch right out. It's the most subtle of the senses. It can stretch right out to the silence. So attempt to stretch out to the silence. St. John of the Cross said, My beloved is the mountains, solitary wooded valleys, strange islands, silent music. And in this expanded state, listen to the following words, which describe your inner being. In this body, in this town of spirit, 
there is a little house, shaped like a lotus. And in that house, there is a little space. One should know what is there. What is there? Why is it so important? There is as much in that little space within the heart as there is in the world outside. Heaven, earth, sun, moon, lightning, stars, whatever is and whatever is not, everything is there. If everything is in man's body, every being, every desire, what remains when old age comes, when decay begins, when the body falls? What lies in that space does not decay when the body decays, nor does it fall when the body falls. That space is the home of spirit. Every desire is there, self is there. Beyond decay and death, sin and sorrow, hunger and thirst, his aim, truth, his will, truth. Thank you very much. Well done. Okay, ladies and gentlemen, welcome back. Just you enjoyed your break. So, do we have any questions? Can you hear me? Uh, yes, you can. Trust me. When you were saying that um, we're made up of the composite of fire, water, and air, is it that we're predominantly one, or can your body be split up? Like, can you have fiery skin and watery eyes? Okay. We are, in truth, a mixture of all of the elements. There will be one element that will be dominant. So you might have, if we look at the caricature of the air body, you might say that that person is 80% air. But they may have some aspect of their being that's quite fiery because that accounts for the other 20%. Or it may be that it's quite even in someone. So they have, you know, 20, 30% of each. So you can have a mixture, definitely. Any other questions? We have to keep this going for 45 minutes. <laughs> Are you aware of the work of Dr. Kabat-Zinn at his pain and stress relief clinic in the University of Massachusetts Hospital, I think it is, where he teaches meditation to all chronic pain sufferers? Yes, we were composing a, a patient information leaflet at the moment for our program in Tala Hospital, and we take his sailing metaphor from the beginning of his book. So we, we are aware of his work, yes, definitely. Would you like to ask anything specifically about it? Well, will you be teaching meditation to patients? Well, I think in terms of meditation, we have to meet the patient where they're at, and it will depend on the patient. What we hope to offer a patient is a technique for relaxation, an ability to be able to stand back from the body and mind. In terms of pain, to be able to put the pain under observation and to practice a form of distraction from it. 
and we'll build on that. And for some, it may be possible for them to learn specific meditation techniques, and for others it may not be. But the idea is that we will try and offer a relaxation technique to patients as part of that, and we'll certainly take on board John Kabat-Zinn's work, and, and we look at others too, so we, we will use that. But as a part of our teaching in um, pain management at the moment, we'd be very conscious of offering a relaxation technique to a patient and then building on that. And for some, it may be meditation. But it really depends on the nature of the patient. Okay. Thank you. Any more questions? Don't be shy. Susan, you're keeping the show going here. <laughs> Can you recommend healthy diets for the different types? We were just talking at the break, you know, a person who's predominantly fiery is the stuff they should avoid to stay healthy and right through the other elements. Yeah. It's useful to look at the rules as opposed to, uh, it's difficult in a forum like this to deal with specific diets because it will be different. As a general rule, I mentioned that fire measure is a big problem. So the first thing that you try to correct in terms of fire is to put measure right. You know that there are certain things that they may abuse. They, they can like sweet things. They can like alcohol. So an alcohol, like the, the American Indians used to refer to alcohol as fire water. So you can imagine in a fire person, you know, fire water might just um, be too much. So you would look at the diet in that way. In, in, in an air-type constitution, you might say, well, the big problem here is they miss meals. So really, they need a regularity to their meals. And probably in terms of what you would offer them is a more substantial, a more kind of water or earthy-based meal that is heavy. In other words, you're trying to ground them a little bit. Whereas in the water-type constitution, again, they're big, heavy, and they tend to like food and accumulate things, so you're going to have to put them on a stricter diet. So you're going to have to reduce and make the food lighter. So you're going to have to use those principles and then look at what's available and the particular culture someone comes from. And Ayurvedic medicine is quite smart in this way because it always says, look at the time, place, context. Like don't be coming up with a specific rule from the past and saying that this is the way it has to be done. So you, you always need to see what the principle is and then look at where the patient is at and make your judgment on that basis. And in that way, you can set up particular diets for individuals. Two questions down at the back there. You said about the mind going towards unwholesome things and that if that your understanding could be right, then that wouldn't happen. So my question is, well, what do we need to understand? We need to understand that in essence we're not the body and mind, that in truth one is self. One has a body and one has a mind. So it's not negating the body and mind, but you need to accept that you are something more than just the body and mind. So that is the kind of the journey that we need to all go on. That is the mission that we have in life, to find out who we are, to answer that question. But we believe that we are the body and mind. We believe that we are the individual, rather than having a mind and having a body. So to address that question, we need to go on that journey. But people who don't address that question aren't necessarily unhealthy or less healthy, or are they? <laughs> no, but you, you need to look at, um, like, as we go to the various levels, people will have problems at different levels at different points of time. So it may be that when we look at the physical elements that one realizes that, well, my problem is at the level of fire, 
that my problem is in my gut and it relates to digestion and that that's what I need to deal with. Now, I may have a very good understanding of what it's all about and I may have a very good capacity to control my mind or allow the mind to control itself, which is its inherent or natural property, but I still have a problem at the physical level. Or it may be that an individual is very healthy at the physical level, but in terms of the mind, the ideas are unwholesome, as in the mind is just full of desire, and despite having a very healthy body, there is a mind that has a problem. Or it may be the problem is at a higher, almost spiritual level, where the mind seems to be fine, mm -hmm. the body seems to be fine, but there is a problem in terms of understanding, there may be a problem in terms of memory. So people will have problems at different levels, and part of the art of medicine is to be able to see the patient and, real, and say, well, is the problem at the level of the physical? Is the problem at the mental level? Is it at a higher level? And sometimes we have this belief that, you know, if one is why, that all of a sudden everything's going to get sorted out. But often you'll have a person who is wise, they've actually forgotten the body and they'll start getting problems in terms of the body. So sometimes if someone comes along and is very physical, you might say, okay, my friend, let's look at what's going on in your mind. Or maybe someone comes along with a problem in their mind and you might say, well, let's look at what's going on in terms of your understanding. Or a person might come along and they really do understand, but we need to remind them that they have a body. We talked at the beginning about the tripod, and the, the art of medicine is just moving between that tripod, seeing where the problem is, and it'll flit around. And the power of the individual or ego is quite strong. It can get into your soup. It can get everywhere. So sometimes it looks like a person understands. Well, then somewhere else in the system, a bit of water comes through the dike and you have to deal with that. Okay. Okay. There was another question at the back that time. I was just wondering, is it preferable in this system of medicine to be a vegetarian or would you just accept people from where they are and does that really matter? Or, or would you recommend that to people not to, to eat meat? Ayurvedic medicine doesn't specifically say that vegetarianism is the healthy option, as it has recipes for all sorts of meat. But it will say that it depends on the constitution. So for some, meat is not such a good idea. And for others, meat may be necessary. Clearly, it's a little bit of a caricature. But if you have someone who is very airy, and you may need everything to keep them earthed, including meat, so it might be totally inappropriate that person would be on a vegetarian diet. But for many others, so you might have a fire type person who is, you know, uses their mind quite a lot, but that meat makes them heavy, and so the fire kind of sags a little bit. So to keep them kind of firing in all cylinders, it mightn't be appropriate that they take meat. It's not coming out and saying one system is better than the other system. And if you take it in terms of where we live in the planet, clearly if you're an Eskimo, there's no point in telling an Eskimo to be vegetarian because he has a particular constitutional type. So Ayurveda is very clever on that score because it says that you take your decision in terms of the context in which you find the patient, the time, the country, the temperate zone, etc. It does make a general recommendation that where possible, food should be appropriate to the temperate zone, which kind of makes you wonder a little bit as we kind of get more exotic in our tastes and the consequences of that. Okay? Next question, question here. Just wondered about eat right for your blood type. Do you know that book that's written by a doctor? Does that um, matter? Eat right for your blood type. Yeah, I haven't read it, so I'm not familiar with it. Do Just wondered the different blood types. Does it matter what you are? If, you know, the different blood types okay. suit you? Or would that come into your medicine? Well, it, I may end up quoting that great line that appears at the end of all good scientific papers, more research is needed. 
if you have a system of medicine that says that, well, looking across a room, one can get a flavor of the type of problems an individual has or is going to get. And then if you come into the modern context and say, well, well, how do we predict in the modern context, or how do we think we can predict in the modern context what an individual might develop? You look at the science of genetics. And so the, the modern scientific idea would be, well, maybe we can predict with genetics what diseases one is going to get. So then the obvious question is, well, is there a link between able to see constitutional type and genetics? And there may well be. And I think part of the issue here is that it's not that uh, this form of medicine is being presented as a fait accompli. It's being presented that it has interesting principles that we can look at, and then we need to investigate them in the context of modern medicine and discover, as in the question you, you ask, are particular constitutional types related to particular blood groups, and we'll see what happens. Yeah, and one other question. In relation to allergies and sensitivities to food, you mentioned earlier that you can poison a house by the way you think and the way you prepare food. Do you think that can be changed too with allergies? You know, can you change? You might have an allergy today and not next year to a different food. You uh, just missed the end of the question. You know, the way you could have an allergy to a different food. Can that change over the years? Well, there are some um, case studies in um, these guys with several personalities, mixed personality types. There's one classic case study where one of the characters in an individual is allergic to orange and comes out in hives. And then when the character changes through hypnosis, all the hives go away instantly. So uh, there's a little bit of work on that. I'm not too sure. In terms of diet, we need to do a lot more work. I couldn't answer that question. Okay, thanks. Sorry, there's a person down here, John. Sorry, this lady. I'm just wondering how we can experience ourselves as other than just body or mind and know that it's not just theory. Right. When you practice a simple exercise, as we practice in the first half, or a, a form of relaxation that we might offer on a, a pain management program, you get to stand back a little bit from the problem. Okay? So you begin to experience that what's happening in the body can be put under observation. So you realize there's, first, there's two components. There's that which observes it, and there's what's happening in the body or the instrument. And that breaks the identification. And it is possible to build on that. So you might, you might have, in, say, a technique of meditation, the capacity to go a little bit more subtle and beyond that so that you reach a point where you are more in tune with that which observes than the object. So you lose the attachment to the object. So in a practical way, you can do it in terms of relaxation techniques or what we call distraction. And you can develop that into meditation techniques so that you get a feel for that you are not the whatever the problem is in the body. So you break the identification. Would that not leave a person as one removed from all experiences? No, because what we need to do is realize that we're more than the physical. So you practice that, and then you go back into the world. It's just like the man working in the field on a hot day. You know, you need to go and sit under the tree. You need to sit in the shade. But then you need to get back and do your work. So it's not advocating that we sit under the tree. It's advocating that, look, you, if you're going to work all the time, you do need a break. You do need to realize that there is something that's more important than just the work. All of these techniques, be they relaxation, prayer, meditation, whatever, are just allowing the individual to come out of the ordinary life. But they're, they're not suggesting that you stay out of the ordinary life. You need to go back. But when you go back, you go back with renewed energy. 
and you're able to take that energy back in. I think one of these, I think it's Stephen Covey, or one of these uh, management gurus talks about sharpening the saw. You know, he talks about the guy who's cutting the wood and he's not getting anywhere. And he, you know, he keeps cutting, gets more and more frustrating as he keeps moving the saw and the, the wood is just not cutting. And, you know, he can't see that he needs to stop and sharpen the saw and then he'll be able to work. So we need to actually break the connection with the work to stand back, to take the rest and then to come back into the activity. And we can also, during the day, we can practice that in just a, a small pause. We can just, when an activity finishes, we can let go the activity and maybe connect with the sense of hearing or the sense of touch or whatever. Just to realize that one is not the activity, to break the connection with the activity. Like a very common complaint in any hospital outpatients today is the patient says, I'm tired all the time. And you just know in the way, the description of lives people lead, that it's not a physical tiredness they're talking about. It's a mental tiredness. And part of the mental tiredness is due to the fact that all the tasks are done during the day without any rest. No one is taking the rest. So one task moves into the next task, into the next task. So at the end of the day, you've got an agitative charge in the system. And that leads to tiredness. It's a mental tiredness. And just one other thing. Would it be accurate then to say that the goal of life or the, the ultimate purpose of life is to find out our true identity? Yeah, this is school. We're down here to find out what we're about. That's the challenge. Next question. Sorry, this question on there. Would Ayurvedic medicine, would it advocate medication or would it say that you should look at forms of relaxation or meditation? I think what Ayurvedic medicine would very much say that one meet, needs to meet the individual and one needs to accept where they're at at this point in time, and one leads them on that journey that I alluded to earlier. So if an individual is very much rooted in a physical explanation of the world and physical symptoms, there's no point in talking to them initially about spirit, because they can't hear that. So you may just open it up a little bit and say, you know, try to introduce the idea that well, on the days are pretty negative, things are worse. So maybe we need to do a little bit of work at the mental level. And then in time, one may be able to use a relaxation technique that might be appropriate to that individual. As they grow, it may be possible to deepen that relaxation technique into a form of meditation. But it may not be because the individual may stay at the physical level. So it wouldn't be as prescriptive as saying it's one or the other. It depends on the individual, their circumstances, time and place. So it means that you have to be conscious all the time. When you see someone, you can't come in with an idea in your head that this person needs this particular treatment or technique. You have to be awake and see what will move this person from the present position, which clearly they're stuck because they've come to you with a problem. And you deal with that uh, as appropriate. So would you ever go say, well, if you took such and such medication, it'll work? Or are you always looking at the more holistic approach? Are you moving away from medicine, if you know what I mean? Oh, no, like, if your bone is broken and it needs to be set, you need an anesthetic. Like, there's no point in telling someone, uh, you know, it's, it's all very subtle and, um, you know, if you kind of listen to a sound, it might work for you and don't worry about the pain. Uh, like, you've got to use your drugs. And that's one thing about Ayurvedic medicine. It's not saying it's a separate medicine. It's actually saying it's the root of all medicine, but it includes the physical. So it doesn't see modern medicine as being other than 
part of Ayurvedic medicine. It just says it's a pity that all the concentration is just on the physical. We need to remember that in any situation there's the physical, there's the mental, and the spiritual. And sometimes, as in the bone example, it's pretty physical. And you need to deal with the physical issues and use the, the marvelous drugs and technology that we've got. Sorry, we had a question up here. You talked about leaving sufficient gaps in between meals. Um, you were talking about an oven and putting something into it and then throwing something in 20 minutes later. Could you just expand a bit on that? And also on eating in between meals, say eating something like fruit, would that be okay or right. would that also not be considered good? They use very much the metaphor of cooking in Ayurveda, which is an interesting metaphor because, you know, we, we have it in our dietary science. We still talk about calories, which is a unit of heat. And they say that when you put a meal into the system, that think of it in terms of cooking the meal, and that it depends on the meal. Like if it's a very large meal, it may need some considerable amount of time in that oven before you kind of throw in something else. So it's not prescriptive from the point of view that says, you know, you can't have fruit between meals. But it tends to say that if you've eaten, that you need to make sure that you're in a good frame of mind, that the setting is good, and that you enjoy the meal, and that you taste the meal, and that you're eating consciously. So it's a holistic feel to food, and that that should satisfy. So there shouldn't be a need for some more food, you know, two or three hours later. There's a natural time in which the body digests the food, takes the energy from the food, processes that which is fine in the food, and that would be the view. So it's an interesting metaphor. And in our modern era, we tend to dismiss things. And we say, this is a bit simplistic. But if you actually look and say the contrast, say a, a child in a school in the ancient world may have been told that, well, what ha if he asks the question, what happens to food? He might be told that in essence, it goes into the system and it's burnt and we get air and water from it. It's very, a very simple explanation. And then you might look at the, the modern explanation and the food is broken into proteins, carbohydrates, lipids, etc., and that they go into this tricarboxylic acid cycle, this Krebs cycle, and there's lots of different enzymes and it looks very impressive and it generates various long chemicals, ATP, and you can talk about the detail, etc. And at the end of the day, what is it doing? It's actually burning the food. The product at the end of the day is H2O, water and air, carbon dioxide. So in many respects, in terms of the food, we have the detail. It's like everything in the contrast between the ancient and the modern world. We have the detail. That's what we're good at. But they've actually got the principles because they're good at the holistic picture. And the trick would be to bring both together. The trick would be to study their principles and then look at our detail and see how they can match and come up with a, maybe some new guidelines that are appropriate to our own era in terms of food. Another question here, John, in the front row. So I may have a couple of questions within what I what want to sure. ask you about. But okay. You mentioned earlier on that a lot of people that go to visit GPs, that's a very high percentage. You may have said 70 or 75 percent. 75 percent. 75 percent were stress-related. Yeah. I just wonder at what stage or does stress become depression or is stress related to mild depression? That's one question I would okay. ask. And, and also that in this country, I believe, in Ireland, that in the age group of something between the age of 16 and 25, we have the highest rate of suicide in young males in Europe. And with the view of those two things, I just is what the approach is for young people 
that are touching on mild depression nowadays in this country? Sure. Well, in terms of the first part of the question, mild depression, stress. Yeah, stress can be related to depression. Stress can generate a lot of anxiety or restlessness in the system. It doesn't always go into depression, but you can have people who are distressed who then become depressed and the depression may get deeper or it might stay at a particular level. So, so there is a spectrum of illnesses around that. And, and many of the stress-related illnesses, at first glance, you might look at them and it looks like it's a very physical type of complaint. But when you look behind it, there's a stress component, which again may be a mixture of anxiety and depression. In terms of the suicide in young males, it certainly is high. What I think, first of all, IOA wouldn't offer an immediate answer, but some of the principles that might be worth looking at. It is said that in terms of sorting out a health problem, one needs to look at the cognitions, the thinking process. One needs to look at the behavior, and one needs to look at the diet. And certainly, if you look at modern society, there's much that's different in the behavior of society now compared to 20, 30 years ago. And one could look at the various components that might have changed. There's certainly a lot different in the way we think now. And there's a certainly a lot of difference in the food that we're eating now. In addition, if you take something that we dealt with earlier, overuse, underuse, misuse of senses, well, you know, you could take one very obvious sense is the sense of hearing and you could actually look at what people are listening to, and are people listening to particular things in this generation that they may not have listened to in previous generations? And certainly the phenomenon, and I'm not blaming this for suicide, but I'm just giving this as an example. If you have a young person who continually lives in a world which is between his ears and the headphone on top, well then, in issues like that, you may be getting, as you look at the different senses, overuse, underuse, misuse, you might look at in terms of diet, you might broaden it out into the drugs and the stimulants people use. And we talk about the sense of smell being underused. But then you might look at the sense of misuse, and you might look at glue sniffing. So there's lots wrong in terms of the behavior. There's lots wrong in terms of the thinking processes. And there's lots wrong in terms of the diet. And the reason for the, the suicide would maybe in one of those. So Ayurveda would just offer you a few other ways of looking at the problem. Our modern approach would tend to be to look at, say, chemical reasons why this is so. And there's nothing wrong with looking at chemical reasons because we're very good at looking at detail. So we're very good at analyzing what's happening in terms of the body. And the next great kind of wave in modern research is what they call neuroscience, which is looking at how the brain works and how the central nervous system works. And certainly, lots of the faith in terms of the modern system of how we treat depression would be based very much on looking at what's happening in terms of the chemicals in the body. But Ayurveda would say, that's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. But you need also to look at the way people are thinking. You need to also look at the behavior. You need to also look at the diet. And then you might actually find the answer to the question. Uh, there's a question at the back. There's a lot of attention being given at the moment to alternative health treatments, uh, some of which are very semi-spiritual in nature, such as Reiki. Uh, you might say they have their place, but how is the average person meant to know where they would fit in or should fit in? Right. Okay. Well, I, I can't comment on particular therapies. I think um, in terms of defense of, say, modern medicine, it's important, first of all, that you know what's going on at the physical level. In other words, if you take something simple like a headache, well, there may be lots of reasons for a headache, or there may be quite sinister reasons for a headache. 
Now, what can modern medicine offer and what can alternative or complementary therapies offer? Modern medicine is very good at diagnosis. So if you want the scan, if you want the appropriate tests or the blood tests to tell you what's going on in terms of the structure, it can give you that information better than most. But then there's lots of people who have the scans and all the appropriate tests, and really there is no treatment offered. They can try tablets, but there's side effects from the tablets. So then they begin to look around and say, well, look, I want another form of therapy. And there's a whole host of complementary or alternative therapies to choose from. And I think you have to be careful. You have to look at the system that you've chosen. It may be appropriate to you, but you have to make sure that the therapist practicing that is properly trained and that that particular group have professional guidelines and that the person that you're going to adheres to the professional guidelines. And the other thing that's important in terms of therapy is who is doing the therapy. Often, if you don't know so much about what they're doing, People often concentrate a lot on wanting to know more about the therapy, but you need to also look at who's doing the therapy. And I'll probably just leave it like that. So, Any other questions? You mentioned when you're going from, a, from ill health to good health that you go from a state of tamas to sattva, but that you go through rajas. Can you explain why you have to go through rajas or give an example? Okay. Well, a simple example, in Tamas, you're on the jungle floor. It's all dark, there's lots of creepy crawlies, it's pretty rough, and that's where we are a lot of the time. The rajas, and I'm probably mixing my metaphors here, is when you've decided that it's, because it's all dark, you want some light on. It's, rajas is your effort to turn the light on. Satwa is when the light is actually on. So, you have some people who will just live in the Tamas, and at no stage will they make an effort to find out what it's all about. You'll have more people who will try, make genuine efforts, they will have some rajas, they will ask some questions, they'll try and find out why things are happening, and they may or may not get the answers. And satwa is when they get the answers, when the light comes on. So that's the difference. Any other questions? One for the road, no? <laughs> We have two questions here. There's, there's one there and there's one here. A basic question. When you were talking earlier about uh, on, you know, on Earth, it's, we spend our whole lives finding out exactly who we are. You're saying we're in school. Yeah. What happens when you find out? <laughs> you get very busy. <laughs> there's lots of work to be done. Like if we talk about society, there being problems in terms of the cognitions, the diet, the behavior, etc. We desperately need people who have the light switched on. We need people who are actually awake. And then we can use them as a resource. We can ask them questions. So I reckon that once the penny drops, you'll be very busy. There are lots of people asking you questions. One question here. It's kind of connected in a way. The interest you have in this Ayurvedic medicine Generally speaking, what is the interest among the medical profession in this country? Because generally speaking, I say we just have the typical medical doctors who, who deal solely with the physical and occasionally with the mental. Right. Like I, as somebody mentioned earlier, how are us mortals meant to kind of get the information that you were talking about tonight? Yeah. Can we buy books or, you know? Well, as I kind of alluded to a little bit earlier, you probably need to 
ask questions as to, to who is doing the therapy, etc. But in terms of the medical profession in Ireland, well, I have, courtesy of the school, talked on this topic from Derry, Cork next week, Art in Action on a yearly basis. I have talked in India and in Japan, but I've never, ever been asked to talk in Irish medicine about it. So that answers that question. But that is not to say there are many people in medicine in, in performing different forms of therapy who are working at a very subtle level. So you'll have doctors who have an interest in homeopathy. You'll have doctors with an interest in acupuncture. So you will have a range of people out there who do have an interest. And it's sometimes useful to ask your doctor if, if there is an interest there because a lot of it can be very mechanical stuff, so you, you might just need to find out if there is an interest. But I think you need to, um, in terms of finding out more about it, you can certainly read, and there's lots of books out there, but I think the best thing to do is to practice, to live every moment consciously and ask questions. And simple things like just connecting with the senses, realizing that if you take, as I say, if you hear one thing tonight, that disease comes from underuse, overuse, misuse of the senses. And then to practice that, and when it generates more questions, find an answer to those questions, be it by reading or asking people who may have studied it. The world is a small place. Questions can be answered. If I don't know the answer to the question, there's a whole university of Ayurvedic doctors in India who can answer questions. So it is possible to use our own ingenuity and creativity to answer the questions. But it's a little bit like the talk about the, the different qualities. We need to get a little bit more rajas from that point of view into the system. So we need to make efforts to turn on the light. And, and sometimes making an effort is actually a bit of a struggle. It's not easy, but that's what needs to happen. Any final question? We've exhausted all possibilities. No? Okay, thank you very much for your attendance and your questions and answers, and um, good practice. <laughs>